All right. So may, trick question, or maybe not. Uh, who is most likely to have written First and Second Timothy? Any guesses? Paul? Yeah, good. So you guys passed. This is good. I, I, I found it kind of silly because it's like, you know, Gospel of John written by John, right? Uh, Luke written by Luke. And then you get to like First Timothy or Titus, and it's not written by Timothy, and it's not written by Titus. But that's because unlike Corinthians or um, Philippians or Romans or Hebrews, First and Second Timothy and Titus are personal letters from Paul to those individuals. And that's why they have the title of the person that the book was written or the letter was written to. Whereas like Corinthians and Romans and Hebrews, that is all a people group or a church that um, Paul writes to. And so they have the names of the church. All right, next trivia question for you. In how many books of the New Testament is Timothy mentioned? Any guesses? It's random. Two? It's a good guess. A little bit more. It's higher. Was that like Price is Right? Higher. Higher. One dollar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go more. So um, it's actually 12 books. 12 books in the New Testament. So it starts in Acts. He's mentioned Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, obviously First and Second Timothy, as well as Philemon and Hebrews. So 12 books. Most of us, I don't, I, I, I don't probably think about like, oh, Timothy, yeah, First and Second Timothy, right? But he actually journeyed with Paul through most of Paul's missionary journeys. So, you know, um, if you recall those maps, maybe even have them in the back of your Bible, uh, the missionary journeys of Paul. So in, Tim, in, in Paul's first uh, missionary journey, he was with Barnabas. But once Barnabas and him kind of get into that conflict and they spread out and go their own ways and Barnabas takes John Mark, um, Paul is left all by himself. And so that's when Timothy begins to come into the picture. And so over half of Paul's missionary journeys was spent investing into the life of Timothy. So if you were with us a couple weeks ago, um, you heard Tim speak about Gehazi and Elijah and how that relationship was. Well, this is kind of the same kind of New Testament relationship, except Timothy does a little bit better in terms of being faithful to the work um, than Gehazi does or did. And so Timothy's ministry is actually very significant because we often look and know Paul very well. But Timothy journeyed through pretty much everything that Paul went through. Timothy met Paul probably, likely, on his first missionary journey. And uh, Timothy was from Lystra, and that was one of the places where, where Paul set out to build and strengthen the church. Timothy comes from a family of believers. His grandmother was a believer, and his mother was a believer, both Jewish. Um, his father, however, was Greek and an unbeliever. And so not 
only um, did Timothy understand the Jewish tradition, understand the Jewish culture, and was kind of raised in that thinking, he also understood Greek culture. And he also was um, able to basically live and function in both um, influences that, that he was. And I think this is why a lot of scholars say that Timothy was an ideal um, protege of Paul, because he had the background of the Jewish culture and the Jewish teachings being raised in the synagogue, but he also understood Greek culture and could reach non-believers and, and share the gospel with them. And so because of Timothy's upbringing, um, there's about a five-year time between his Paul's first missionary visit and his second missionary visit. And during that time, Timothy really invests into uh, studying the scriptures and knowing God. And he builds a reputation for himself. And he is mentioned in Timothy as being known among his people, among the town, as a good and faithful man. And so uh, when Timothy goes back and he meets him and he visits with him, um, Paul leaves Lystra the second time saying, Timothy, you're coming with me. And he takes Timothy with him, and they travel to Rome, and they travel to Ephesus, they travel to Corinth, they travel to Philippi, and they go all over, um, all over Asia Minor, just preaching. And Paul is just pouring in to Timothy. So Timothy is pretty foundational when it comes to understanding the early church. We're going to um, jump into First Timothy, but we know the letters that Paul writes to churches of Corinth. We know the letters that uh, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus because we have them in the New Testament. What I think is a key part is to begin to make the connection that the person walking out those letters in those churches is Timothy. So as these letters arrive to these churches, Timothy then basically, like, it's, he's getting his next assignment when he gets these letters. And it's his role to walk out with that church the message that Paul sent. And if you recall, there's some pretty tough, challenging moments that Paul confronts the churches. Like in Corinth, there's sexual immorality. All right, Tim, like, jump in there, right? Start figuring that out. Start preaching, start teaching, start educating and discipling the people into appropriate sexual morality, right? With the church, um, with um, Philemon, right? We have Onesimus being the slave that ran away and has to be received. What's Timothy's role? To help uh, Gaius accept Onesimus back into the body, help create a culture that accepts people no matter what their role is, no matter what their status is in the community. These are really challenging. This is like on-the-ground work that Timothy was called to. Scripture points out, and it's mostly deduced from Paul's consistent encouragement, which we'll look at in in 1 Timothy in a minute here. But Timothy, Paul in pours into Timothy in a really um, exhortative and encouraging kind of way because the character of Timothy, he is very loyal. He is very steadfast, very um, capable of 
of kind of holding to the doctrine and the teaching that he learned from Paul. But he's also soft-spoken. He is also uh, a bit timid when it comes to facing conflict. And yet, he is also the one that Paul entrusts with the ability of discipling and encouraging and putting kind of flesh on these letters that he writes to the churches. And, and we're going to get to this point, but I think it's, it's just really amazing to see God use Timothy in a way that I don't think Timothy would have anticipated being used. That in Timothy's weakness, God was made strong because he allowed God to work in him. He allowed God to use him despite his own areas of weakness and his own ability to interact with people. And I mean, with we're going to get into this, but in the book of Timothy, I mean, he is facing fierce doctrinal threat on the church. And I don't know if you, like, from our experience of debate and philosophy, I mean, we're pretty much in the thick of it, right, uh, with the election, like, even just that, like, Democrat-Republican animosity, right? To convince somebody of your opinion or your view is very difficult. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of self-awareness, and it takes a lot of knowing yourself and knowing what it is you're actually advocating or um, are speaking for. And, and this is the challenge that Timothy faced in, in, um, in the book of First and Second Timothy, and specifically at the church in Ephesus, which is where he is. All right, so we're going to jump in. Uh, I'm going to read for us this morning um, from First Timothy. We're going to read verses 3 through 20. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Just pause for a minute. I mean, do you hear Paul's words there? I mean, that's, 
that's a pretty significant responsibility for anyone to face, right? I mean, Timothy is being exhorted to stand firm against all of those things that are attacking and invading the church. Let's pick up verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Really, a lot going on, right? It's really powerful too, right? I mean, there's there's significant felt threat by Paul uh, on behalf of the church in Ephesus, and he is he is being very, I mean, of which is true of Paul's nature, right? To be very bold and very clear with Timothy, like this stuff is not allowed. Stay true to the gospel. Stay true to the doctrine that you know is Jesus Christ. And so he, he exhorts him. Now, there's a lot in this passage, and if we were just preaching on Timothy, we would dive into a, a lot more of it. But what I'm going to pull out of this passage is what relates to Timothy, what relates to him as a person, what relates to his ministry, and then kind of apply that to our circumstances and our situation as we seek to walk out our relationship with Christ. So you will see in the beginning, first in, in verses three there, he talks about all of this um, false doctrine. He calls it um, myths, endless genealogies, speculations. Um, he talks about vain discussions, desiring to teach, be teachers of the law without understanding. Um, and that they make confident assertions based on their perceived knowledge. Again, like, there, it's, it's philosophy, it's opinion, all of this that is really hard to, um, to have verifiable evidence, right, to, to confront. Because when t- t- Paul writes to Timothy, you got to keep in mind that we are about two or three generations out from knowing Jesus. So we're getting to the spot where the story of Jesus is now really becoming uh, more of that. It's becoming a story because you're having less and less eyewitness accounts 
to speak on behalf and give testimony to Christ and his life. So you have Paul here who's writing to Timothy saying, hey, now that we're starting to deal with these people who never actually encountered Jesus, we actually have to build a foundation, a doctrine, what um, we now call orthodoxy around Jesus and the gospel. Now, orthodoxy is kind of a big word. It's a word that we probably hear a lot and maybe wonder what it actually means. So real quick, um, orthodoxy is um, it's a two, twofold. It is um, ortho and then doxy. So ortho is Greek word meaning straight. That's why you have, I thought this was really funny. It's why you have orthodontics, right? Because they give you straight teeth. Um, it's why you have orthopedics because they make your kids straight. Now, I think that's only physically they try to do that, because if they could do that emotionally and behaviorally, that would be awesome, but they don't all the time. So orthopedics, right, is straight kids, is what it basically means. Um, And so when we have orthodoxy, right, it's straight, which um, when you kind of get, metaphorically speaking, when you talk about in the spirit of being straight, that's where we get right or true. All right. Now, doxy, that's a little bit different. Doxy is a Greek word having many different nuances to it. So doxy can mean opinion, glory, teaching, doctrine, judgment, notion, dream, imagining. So doxy is actually this really complex, dynamic word that um, in when you think about it in terms of the gospel, when you think about it in terms of our faith, it's actually a really neat thing because if you add straight before all those, right? So orthodoxy would be straight opinion, straight glory, straight teaching, straight judgment, straight notion, straight dream, straight imagining, right imagining, true imagining, true dream, right dream, you get this? So it, it really does encapsulate the faith. But that there is within our faith a right truth, a right foundation, a right directive that we are to walk in in according to God's word. And so here we have Timothy being given this task of staying true and challenging these false teachings with straight teaching, straight opinion, being confident in that. So Paul goes on and he tells Timothy, he says, the aim of our charge, this is verse five, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So this is what Paul's encouraging Timothy to. He's saying, I know that you have to face all of this false doctrine. I know that you have to be challenged and be um, accused and be told many things that are false and that are lies that are seeking to lead you astray. But I encourage you, I exhort you first in love. Have this about you, love. That comes from a pure heart. Now, I don't know about you, but it is pretty hard to have a pure heart when you are having a heated discussion with someone that is of difference of opinions. 
it's quite challenging. I would say for me, near impossible because I just get emotionally caught up in that, right? And then you're just like, no, you have to know this. You have to believe what I believe because this is so true. And yet, if that first isn't covered in love, then we're out of character. So we char- the aim of our charge is love, that issue from a pure heart, that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience. This is almost as difficult, if maybe even harder, not harder than, a pure heart. Good conscience, what it says is knowing thyself. That's what a good conscience is, knowing yourself. I know myself pretty well, and I know the parts of me that I don't want to know. So my good conscience is only good when it's a part of me that I actually want to know, right? Like when it is something that is, uh, I don't really like about myself, it's something I don't feel secure in, maybe it's something that I don't feel um, like I know enough about to to be in a conversation or to be uh, sharing, I'm going to ignore that little part of me that says, you don't know what you're talking about, and I'm just going to pretend, right? I'm going to fake it. Maybe I'll say something rash. Maybe I'll try and, you know, whatever, Uh, but I'll influence the conversation or the discussion, right, to guard that part of me. But here Paul's like, no, you can't do that. Sorry. (laughs) What? Like, that's natural, and yet Paul's exhorting Timothy to say, no, we do this in good conscience. Knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, being completely vulnerable, being willing to take the risk of looking like a fool for the sake of the gospel. And then he says, and a sincere faith. It's just genuine. It's right. It's pure. It's this is what I believe. And I know it might not make sense. I know that you have to suspend logical thinking at times to believe it. But this is faith. It is sincere. There's conviction with it. And so this is, this is Paul's response. This is how Paul challenges Timothy to engage the church at Ephesus against these doctrinal attacks upon the church and the people there. Look at, um, jump down to verse 18. It says, Paul says to Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith, and a good conscience. Verse 2, Paul addresses Timothy, he says, my true child in the faith. This is is an intense relationship between Paul and Timothy. And we see that because he's calling him a true child in the faith. This is his spiritual son. And then he says, I charge, this charge I entrust to you. That means that he is saying, Timothy, what I believe, what I have given to you, may you give to others without changing a thing. It's like 
the most precious thing Paul has. And he says, here, Timothy, this is yours. It's extremely fragile. Even the slightest pressure in the wrong spot will change the shape of this, this object that I'm giving to you. But I entrust it to you, and I want you to give that to everybody in this congregation without making the slightest change. That's a little bit of a high expectation, right? It's a little overwhelming. But that's how much Paul trusted Timothy. It's how much Paul knew Timothy was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, would be trustworthy, would be loyal. And he entrusts the gospel message to Timothy to build the churches, to exhort the churches, to encourage the churches. And so he says to him, do this waging good warfare, right? What's he acknowledging? He's acknowledging that Timothy is in warfare. He is in spiritual warfare. He is fighting for the orthodoxy of the church. He is fighting for the gospel. That is what he is doing. And Paul acknowledges that, and he says, it's good warfare, and here are your weapons, holding faith and good conscience. Believing what you believe because you know it's the word of God, and knowing yourself well enough to know how to speak it, how to share it, how to be authentic, how to be real with the people you share it with. So what's this look like for us? As we walk in our own relationships, let's get my notes here, it's important for us to realize that we do not fall far from where Timothy is as well. Now, Timothy was uh, a leader of a church. Timothy oversaw churches all the time. He um, had a little bit of an apostolic and pastoral call on his life. But as Christians, as followers of Christ, we also have callings on our own lives to walk out our faith, to spread the gospel, to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God, to walk in a way that brings light to darkness. And when we walk in that way, it requires of us two things, faith and good conscience. It requires of us the same things that it requires of Timothy as he faces these challenges. What he was battling was what we now know is Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a philosophical point of view that basically um, loves questioning and loves creating their own sense of like answer, their own answers to their own questions. And, and it's this whole intellectualization of faith and spirituality that leads you further and further from God. That is very present in our world today. It's still a philosophy that is running rampant, and it's still something that we are challenged to face every day. And so we are not actually that much different than Timothy in our expectations to bring straight teaching, to bring right and true belief, to bring right and true opinion, to bring right and true dreams and imagination about God and the gospel to other people. The question that I, th- I want to bring to us is, what, when we think about our good conscience, what is it that actually stands in the way of us walking that out? Being a part of Netzer has been a really um, 
eye-opening experience. My church history involves being at Coventry Church of the Brethren for 14 years, kind of being at Lampeter for uh, roughly like five years on and off, five, six years on and off, Um, then back at Coventry for another five years, and then here for I think it's like seven years now. Um, And so considering how many churches are, my church experience is really limited. It's pretty, like, I mean, it's pretty much too only Church of the Brethren denomination. So, um, granted, I had the honor of marrying a Catholic woman, so I got to know about the Catholic Church too, which is good. Um, but beyond that, it's pretty limited. But being a part of Netzer, I get to actually see other denominations and how they do church, how they understand. And it's amazing to see the same struggles from church to church. It's amazing to see that in leadership there is the same discouragement as they face challenges in leading a body of Christ into relationship with God. It's amazing to see that regionally God is doing something in his church and trying to build up and encourage his church. I believe over the past couple years, God has been shaking his church and he has been kind of shaking the church because he wants the excess stuff, the stuff that's kind of gotten tacked on by all these kind of vain ideologies and, and false doctrines to fall away from the church so that the church can rise up and be prepared for whatever's coming next in terms of spiritual warfare here on earth. And I think he's preparing his church. And Timothy is at a spot, too, where the church is being built. The church is being raised up. All of Paul's letters, they're to exhort the church to raise them up. Timothy is given this directive. He's given this mission, this campaign to build up and encourage the church on the ground, in the fronts of this spiritual warfare. We, as the body of Christ, we as the church, have that same mission. We have that same call. But we actually have to have a, a, an awareness of ourself to be able to walk that out. And so I need to know what is in me that I have accepted or I have believed as a false teaching or a false doctrine along the way because culture, because of conversations where I felt inadequate, because of hearing things over and over again I've accepted and I've agreed upon. There's no judgment in that. So hear that. There's no judgment. But we all have it. Because that's the nature of living in a culture that is not advocating and promoting Christ-like examples and Christ-like message. We begin to compromise things. We begin to be open to it. And Paul's message to Timothy is, I entrust this to you. That's massive because it's saying, don't change this. This is good. So I have a few ways I'd like to illustrate that, this for us this morning. This is the American flag, in case you didn't know. This flag symbolizes many things. For, for those who have served our country faithfully, we, like, we thank you for that. And this flag means something because of that, right? 
for some people, this flag might mean something else. It might mean oppression. It might mean some, whatever. This morning, I would like to use this flag to represent a couple things. And these are things that I think we have to ask ourselves, how do we see ourselves first? So when you look at this flag, does it represent being an American citizen? And that might be okay, but is being an American citizen in submission to being a child of God? So first, do we see ourselves as children of God? Second, do we see ourselves as American citizens? As we go into this election on Tuesday, this is a big deal. Because we might think that there's a right person to vote for. We might think it's our right to vote. But our first identity is being a child of God. So our first question is, God, we, it's not a question, we just need to say, God, we trust you with the leadership of our country. And we commit to praying for the leadership of our country, despite our political preference, despite our personal views, we are first a part of God's kingdom. Secondly, this flag may represent American greed or materialism, which we promote in a more positive way of saying the American dream, right? But is that, is our our success in life, is that in submission to generosity and giving? Do we adopt the biblical principles around materialism, that it is all not going to go with us anyway, so it's all the Lord's, we give it to him? Is it in submission? Next is American individualism. We are all about being an individual in America. And It probably came out of some good thinking at some point. (laughs) But is that in submission to covenantal community? Because what does God call us to? He calls us to be the body of Christ, to live in communion with each other, to break bread together, to share together. And so do we submit our own junk around not wanting to open up and be vulnerable with our brothers and sisters in Christ, which communicates American individualism, Do we submit that? Do we lay that down and accept covenantal community? Do we walk in relationship with our brothers and sisters? And so I'm not trying to be disrespectful of this flag. Please hear that. But I'm using it as as an example of how American philosophy, American thought and thinking can influence our faith. And as Christians, as the body of Christ, we're actually called to stand against that. And so we have to look at ourselves and we have to say, we're going to lay this on the altar. And we're going to look to the cross. We're going to define ourselves by Jesus. I'm going to do the same with the Christian flag. Many of us have our own definitions of what this flag is. Many of us... um, Good or bad, it's okay. But the question is, what is this about? You know, part of Gnosticism, part of the thing that Timothy was challenged by 
he was challenged by an immorality. And we, saw, we see that with the, the church in Corinth. We see that with, um, in the church of Ephesus, um, even like a hyper-spiritual sexuality where it's like not Christian to have sex or do anything like that. Like, so Timothy has to ch- challenge this too. And I would say, let's let like this represent for this illustration the legalism that has been communicated by the church. Is it legalism? Or is it in love holding firm the truths of Scripture? See, when people experience legalism, they don't experience love. They just experience the condemnation. But in love, right? What was Paul's advocating for Timothy? He said, first, love. Out of love issue these things. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there are ways that we can walk in obedience. But is it out of legalism that we push that on others? Or is it in love that we hold people accountable to walking in obedience with Christ? The other is intolerance, right? When we get to this place of opinion and we think our opinion's right and, we, and they think their opinion is right, we become intolerant. We're just like, I don't have time for that. And so much, and maybe some of your experience of the church has been that the church has actually become intolerant. We won't actually wrestle with the gray. And we just become like intolerant. We're like, yeah, no, we're not dealing with that. It's not happening. No, we don't talk about that. We don't do that. Some of that is because it's so far, we want it to be so far removed because we think it's so bad. Some of it is because it's actually happening and we don't face it. We don't confront it. And so we just like turn a blind eye. But that's not actually what God calls us to. He calls us to grace and he calls us to mercy. He calls us not to be judgmental, but he calls us to walk in grace and mercy, in a humility. And lastly is Christian morality versus godly obedience. Is it about making sure that our children don't have sex before marriage? Or is it about communicating that no, there is something so rich and so valuable in saving yourself from marriage? It's not about not doing something because God says it's not good. It's about understanding that when we walk in obedience, we are blessed because of God's plan and God's design. And so whatever Christian junk we're holding on to that has kind of clouded our perspective, the question is, are we willing to lay it on the altar and look to Christ? Lastly is this thing iPhone, maybe a little bit more relevant for some generations. What this represents, earning by doing. Sure, get the iPhone, get all these special apps, connect everything, make it more efficient. No, it just made a lot more work. And a lot more guilt when somebody texts you and you are tired and you don't want to text them back, but yet... Everybody expects a text back when they get a text because that's how quick communication can be now, right? So does it represent earning by doing, right? Do I get affirmation by accomplishing more? Or is it about being humbled by being? Instead of busying ourselves with this, distracting ourselves from knowing 
what's going on inside? Can we be humbled by what God might say to us by just being with him? Can we be vulnerable with God and not use this as a distraction? Another is instant gratification. Just like the text, if you send it, you want the text, you want the reply, right? If you send an email, he can get email, why isn't he responding yet? We, that instant gratification. So are we willing to lay that down and say we don't want that anymore for peace that passes understanding? We think getting our to-do list done or getting back to everybody and having no emails in our inbox is a calming experience. But God offers peace that passes understanding for us when we abide in him and when we're humbled with him so that we can have 10,000 emails and still have peace because peace doesn't come from an empty inbox. It comes from being with God. Last one is guarded and cold versus vulnerable and warm. How many kids break up relationships now via text <laughs> versus actually confronting the person face-to-face? How much we have gotten comfortable with non-direct communication, right? And this isn't judgmental. I'm not saying that that's, right? We're not going towards Christian legalism with that stuff. We're saying, no, there's something better. God wants us to be in relationship with him. God wants us to be vulnerable. That's his desire. Timothy has to walk in this way if he is going to fulfill, and I would argue that Timothy did an amazing job working and walking in this way because he is left in scripture with affirmation after affirmation, exhortation after exhortation. Church after church grows and is exhorted because he's willing to walk through suffering on behalf of Christ. So the question is, do we lay it on the altar? Do we, do we just acknowledge that this stuff is present in our life? And do we give it to God so that we can stand in opposition to false doctrine? so that we can stand against false teaching. But more so, it's not actually about standing against those things. It's actually standing for God. See, when it's against, then that's, I think, where like the legalism comes out, right? Because it's not, you're wrong, I'm right. That's not orthodoxy. It doesn't fit with the full being, right? It's ortho, straight, yes. But what's the spirit of it? It's, it's about bringing people to Christ. It's about sharing the gospel. It's about walking in the truth, having the confidence because Christ is who he is. And we can have that faith. And more, I, I would, I, haven't, I wasn't alive years and years ago, so I can't say that we need faith more than they did then. I'm sure they needed just as much as we do now. But there is a call to greater faith right now. Greater faith than we've walked in. Because God's preparing his church to be an answer to all the chaos that is going around in the world. And if we're going to be that answer, then we have to have a right teaching. We have to have a right 
doctrine. We have to have a right dreaming and imagining. And we have to walk it out in love. Because if we don't walk it out in love, we're not going to look any different than the world. But we're called to be different. We're called to walk it out differently. And I think that's the call for us as a church. It's a call for the church in the general region. And so first things first, right? What is it that we need to acknowledge is in us that we bring to the altar so that we can walk and be taught by our Father? Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this morning. just acknowledge that uh, you are God and you are good. And Father, there's stuff that's stuck inside of us. There's stuff that's present that um, we've grown tolerant of. We've grown to maybe even believe on some level that is not of your gospel. It's not of your design. We ask that you would seek and search our hearts for those things that we would be of good conscience so that we could be aware of them and we could lay them on the altar. Father, we pray that you would just raise up your church. Continue to shake us so if there is more that is not of you that needs to fall away from church, let it fall away. Father, we yearn deeply to be a church for you, to be a people following you. Father God, we just pray that you would, um, you would just bless our desires to be faithful servants. Just going to leave you with this. Um, we'll close uh, with this, if that's all right. Um, just invite you to stand and receive the words in Second Timothy. Considering all you have heard. So for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, church, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. May you walk in the fullness of the gospel. 
May the, fan, may the flame within you to live for Christ be fanned. May it burn hot and bright. That in the midst of the chaos, the church would shine bright as the answer, as the right way, the right path. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace.